uh, you didn't get one, let me know and I will order them yet today so that they can be in real quickly. Um, and you can have one so that you can follow along. We're continuing our sermon series um, in Zechariah, and, and Cindy, that was a that was an affirmation to me when I when I heard uh, how much it was emphasized that it's so easy to miss things uh, when you're preaching topically, or even another thing that was said was, guys. Your sermon should be ready no later than Thursdays. Uh, <clears throat> Kay can tell you she usually has my outline uh, early in the week and uh, you know if she has the topics and the text at the beginning of the month uh, I'm, not, I'm not one who believes in the last minute. I do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to guide there are some things that I have all of a sudden thought of and said during a message that I have no idea where they came from if I'm looking at it from a worldly perspective. Uh, but I also believe that God and the Holy Spirit are big enough to use my planning ahead of time so that I can be adequately prepared. Uh, I titled my message this morning, Thinking Outside the Box. And I was really tempted coming home yesterday to just ditch all my notes. And uh, I convinced myself not to. I convinced myself because of what they said, of making sure that your message is prepared by Thursday, uh, to stay with what God had led me to say already as I prepared. And where I want to start this morning with this whole idea is I want to start with a verse. And I want you to read it. I'm not going to read it to you. At first, I want you to read it. I want you to think about it. The verse is John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh. Jesus, who is identified as the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is written by John, who was described as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. The one that was in a special place. The one who was a part of that three that were signaled out. Peter, James, and John. John begins his account of the life of Jesus, which in his own words is written, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Chapter 20, verse 31. He begins his account of Jesus' life by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when he comes to verse 14, he says that that Word made His dwelling among us. 
More literally translated, the Greek word skenao means that the Lord pitched His tent. He tabernacled. It's the same word that is used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle where God came to dwell. God has come to dwell with humanity. Especially among believers. What does that mean to you? So here's my second question. Is it possibly time for you and I to start to think outside the box? If Jesus walked in right now, through that door, that door, or that door, or just through the wall? Because <clears throat> it said He could come and appear be when the, all the doors were locked. If Jesus came into this auditorium right now, would anything change? I've been at some places with groups of Christians that if Jesus walked in and they knew it was Jesus without any shadow of a doubt, things would change. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Because if the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit dwells within us as promised in Scripture, and Jesus the Son, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. Isn't God here right now with us? I think we need to start working hard to understand what we truly believe and how that belief possibly needs to be changed, especially if it's hindering, if it's keeping us from making any progress, we tend to be people who get stuck in ruts. On our way home last night, Rich and Cindy went one direction, we went another direction. They went to visit sister, we went to visit our son and stop in Bloomington Normal and take Austin out to eat. And we went to a restaurant that he said he always likes to go to. And as soon as he got the menu, he said, I don't need that. I know what I want. He said he orders basically the same thing every time he goes there. How many of you are like that? As we walked into the auditorium, Cindy started to go to the left. And she stopped and she said, you know, I was going over there because that's where I always sat in chapel. I started going to the right and we went down to where I always have sat, not during chapel. I didn't always make it to chapel when I was a student like I should But every time we've gone back for services, I guarantee you that my wife and I sit within a row or two well, you always want to sit up further. Yeah. I always want to sit closer to the front than she does. But 
We tend to be people who operate our lives in ruts, don't we? And I know you've heard it, because I've heard it. I heard it one time, and I was so glad that I didn't have to be the person to prove them wrong. Two of the other men of the church proved the person wrong. When a person said, well, we've never done that like that around here before. And actually it turned out that the church had done something like that at that church before. Those, many people recognize, are the seven words that have killed more churches than anything else. And maybe, just maybe that's why we're in the situation that we find ourselves in this morning. Maybe the emptiness of these pews should be crying out to us to get out of some of the ruts that we've been in and start thinking outside the box. Maybe the way we've always done things before have produced these results and we don't need these results. We need different results. So we need to do things differently. I understand that there's a sign in Canada like this one. Except the sign in Canada said 60 60 miles. It says, Driver, please choose carefully which rut you drive in because you'll be in it for the next 20 miles. You won't be able to get out of it. Listen to me. It was difficult for a person in the days of Zechariah to think in terms of a city without walls. And in our text for today, Zechariah is going to be talking about Jerusalem being a city without walls, unfortified without protection. And it was part of God's plan. Nehemiah does construct physical walls around the city many years later. But it's not to be so at this point. They needed to think outside the box. Yes, God did protect and guard their ancestors with a pillar of fire. Yes, there was a cloud of smoke by day and a a glow of flaming fire by night. But that had been a long time before. People just didn't think in that manner now. But should they? You see, in Proverbs 25-28, a wall without a city, well, the writer compares a wall without a city, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's not a pretty picture. So let's look at our text. Zechariah chapter 2. The whole text will be down to 13, but right now I'm just going to read to verse 5. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. 
Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run! Say to the man, Run! Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The vision. It was a vision about a surveyor and his task. Now let me ask you a third question. Let me ask you, not a question actually, let me ask, ask you to consider for a moment. Do you really believe that God is at work in ways appropriate to our needs? That's not popular, you know. The more popular belief of this day is to believe in a deistic God, not a theistic God. To believe in a God who is out there, who created, but who is standing out there aloof, not intervening. Not involved. And that is a thought that is proclaimed from many pulpits. Do we really believe that God is involved in our lives? Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, this is a little caveat so you know me a little bit better. I do not believe that God micromanages our lives. I don't believe that I am at this church today, this morning, because God planned for me to be at this church today, this morning. Because had I chosen not to be at this church this morning, God would have made sure somebody else was at this church this morning. He would have called two, three, five, however many He needed to call until somebody said, yes, Lord, here I am. We have the ability to deny what God is leading us to do. We are created as free people. But do we believe that God is in fact acting if we are listening and responding? Though the third vision concerns Jerusalem and not the nations, Zechariah is still outside the city when he sees a man with a measuring line in his hand. Now already in chapter 1, verse 16, the prophet had been given the message that the builder's line would be stretched out over Jerusalem. The question was, where should the surveyor begin? I mean, was it safe to rebuild the temple while the city remained defenseless? I mean, that thought may have been in the mind of those who advocated that the first thing that they should be doing was rebuilding the walls. In which case, the young man would represent the cautious of his day. His task, his purpose, is obviously to mark out the boundaries of the city. 
And if you go back to the historical books, you'll find in Ezra an account of the opposition of the Samaritans. So obviously there was a need to take precaution. And a common sense uh, approach would argue that to fortify the ramparts was the will of God. Do you find it easy to find verses so that the will of God says what you want it to say and what you want it to say in your life? Was it safe to rebuild the temple while the city remained defenseless? Most would say no. And this may have been in the mind of, of those who were wanting the walls built. His task, his purpose, was to start getting that city outlined. However, the very understandable reasoning of the surveyor is not in keeping with God's purpose, which is declared to another angel. Zechariah's interpreting angel. Angels are messengers. And the messenger task of the angel is very clear. Run! Say to the young man. One commentator suggested that he is depicted as young because he hasn't yet learned that God's ways cannot be discerned by human reasoning. And as legitimate as it was for Jerusalem to have walls for safety, on this occasion, that plan was too small. I've said this before here. I will say it again. I have come to believe it. I have seen it evidenced. Churches don't have money problems. Churches have faith problems. Because when churches are responding in faith, when the people in churches are responding with the baseline being tithing, there are no money problems. Eight years later, you might remember from our look at Nehemiah, his hope of an overflowing population was so far from being fulfilled that they had to cast lots to get and compel people to move into the city. And as inviting as the open city was, it took a lot of courage to live without protective walls. Hence, God's promise. For I will be to her a wall of fire. They needed to think outside the box. In the original language, by the way, the I is emphatic. And so is the verb. And that is so contrary to the usual Hebrew practice with the verb to be I. It seems to be an intentional reference back to Exodus chapter 3.14 where God said to Moses, when they ask you who I am, you tell them, I am who I am. 
And He said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent Me to you. And the fire and the glory would recall the Exodus experience. Zechariah was given a message that proved the continuing validity of the covenant made at the Exodus. Whereas Ezekiel had foreseen the return of the glory to the temple, Zechariah sees his glory extending to the whole city and later to the whole world. Together, the second vision that we concluded with last Sunday and this third vision forms a guarantee of the safety of Jerusalem. God is both dealing with potential enemies and protecting His people in the same way and on the same covenant basis that He did at Exodus. And the same way that He will today if we let Him. So having established this with a vision, there follows an oracle that brings out the practical application of the vision. And I will read from verse 6 down and through verse 13. Ah! Ah! Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have declared, or for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ah, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they shall become plunder for those who have served who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and you shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as His portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. It's an oracle calling for purity. My friends Mark Halen and Clay Ham, uh, I think Clay was at Lincoln at the same time you were, Cindy. Uh, they've written a commentary for the College Press series. And in their commentary, they point out how verses 6 and 7 begin a new section in the chapter in which a series of prophetic sayings clarify the significance of the vision that we read in verses 1-5. to The audience changes. It changes from Zechariah to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and those exiles that are still in Babylon. And the speaker may no longer be inter the interpreting angel, but maybe Zechariah himself. 
The fact that the rest of the chapter is poetry is not obvious in our English versions. Not even in the ESV that I have chosen to start using for a while. There's a change. Not only the change of the speaker, but also a change of the genre. And the poem can be divided into two equal stanzas. Verses 6 to 9 and verses 10 to 13. The two halves have a similar structure. They have an introductory command followed by a clause beginning four. And then after the divine word comes the prophet's comment, then you shall know. In each half, there is a word of the Lord and that of the prophet. In terms of their point of view, verses 6 to 9 deal with the overflow of enemies and so relates to the second vision, while the second half declares the Lord's sovereignty in Zion and relates to this third vision. Zechariah is reinforcing the implications of the two visions. And the exclamation that he uses, up, up, introduces here and in Isaiah 55.1 an exhortation touched with a note of sympathy and pity. It's addressed to the Jews who remained in exile, urging them to flee from the land of the north, return to the strengthened hands of those rebuilding the community in Jerusalem. They were to escape. But listen, not so much from the political restrictions as from the danger of becoming too comfortably integrated in the economic life of the countries of their adoption. Too comfortable with where we are at. I find myself stepping out here when I want to get on a soapbox. <laughs> Those of us that are older, this was brought home to me in the messages that we heard. Brian's message especially. Those of us that are older remember a day when things that are on television right now would have banned people from being on television. And yet we find ourselves not only watching, but watching and laughing. Have we become too comfortable living in Babylon? care how you feel about the issue of drinking. I really don't. I do not believe that the Bible condemns having a drink. I do believe the Bible condemns drunkenness. I believe that when Jesus created the wine, it wasn't grape juice. It was wine. I believe that when Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your belly's sake, it wasn't grape juice, it was wine. But that being said, what about our witness when we choose to do that drinking 
in public where other people who might not share the same understanding, who might be a weaker brother who see us, what about what's happening to them when they see our behavior? Are we being too comfortable living in Babylon? You see, this is a call for purity. It's a call for the exiles, wherever they are, to return. And the meaning of the call is made quite clear when he says, escape to Zion. Not escape to Jerusalem. Zion was the name for the religious understanding of Jerusalem. He is saying, get back to your relationship with God. Get back to the place where you know where God is dwelling and God is dwelling in your midst. Get back. Get out of those nations that in spite of their apparent security are about to experience judgment. And the Jews who remain there in them are going to inevitably share their fate. I sat with a young man several years ago, brokenhearted, crying. He had no understanding of what he and his wife had done that brought about their separation from one another and their eventual divorce. He was shocked by her walking out and leaving. And as we started talking about some of their behavior when they were away from each other and some of the openness of their relationship, it soon became apparent that he had set himself up for a divorce. The prophet's command is one of urgency. The mission to the nation gives another glimpse into the call of Zechariah. Though he was sent primarily to Israel, his message had a bearing on all of the nation's concerns. And before quoting the divine message, Zechariah refers to a simile that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10. The reminder that God kept them as the apple of His eye. And that's another allusion to the Exodus. Though it had seemed that the Lord didn't care when the armies had plundered Jerusalem, the prophet believed that these events in no way disproved the divine love. Which leads it easily into the main affirmation that follows. Verse 9, Behold! Behold! That word is used by the prophets, by the way, to introduce a particularly emphatic statement. And for Zechariah, behold, by a gesture of the hand, the Lord is able to overthrow the established order of the nations. I am worried. I know we're not to be anxious and not to worry. So let me temper this a little bit. I am worried about the future of this nation. 
I do not believe that our children are growing are going to be able to grow up with the same freedom of worship that we are experiencing. I'm concerned. But Zacharias says by a by a mere gesture of his hands, the Lord's able to overthrow. The Jews who had been slaves will themselves inherit the prey for their oppressors, he says. But it's important enough that Zacharias sees this emphatically as the Lord's doings, not man's. When I hear about the progress of our country and what can be done, I always hear, I, I, I. I'll do this. I'll do that. And man, it really becomes evident in less than two years that I isn't going to get done what I said he was going to get done. And the proper response was to return. To return and prepare for an event. Call the to return to the purity required to be in the temple and required for the temple to be rebuilt and be the dwelling place of God. And so we heard the promise, God's promise. I'll come and I'll dwell in your midst. Verse 10, the beginning of the last section of the chapter, before moving into chapter 3 and the fourth vision, begins with two imperatives. Just as the first stanza of the poem did in verses 6 and 7, however, on this occasion, it's sing, rejoice. And you know what? Those two words, although they appear frequently in Scripture, those two words aren't put together anywhere else in our Old Testament. Several places there are songs of praise for deliverance introduced by sing, shout, cry aloud. In fact, the enthronement of the Lord as King in Zion is frequently the setting of, of such exaltation. Most explicitly in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Tabernacle and temple were the visible signs, the physical tokens of the presence of the covenant-keeping God. The God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And with the building of the new temple, in progress, this promise involves continuity with the covenant and the enthroning of the Lord in Zion. And it was a major encouragement. The Lord of, of all was to return to His throne in Jerusalem. But it didn't happen. They built a temple but even the rabbis, even the rabbis in their writings said, we haven't felt our freedom. We're still in exile. We're still in punishment. And Daniel said that was going to happen. 
Daniel said, no, it's not going to be 70. It's going to be 70 times 7. Because you didn't respond the way you should have during the 70 years. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think that we are living under judgment because we have not responded to the many signs that God has given us that we are not living the way we are called to live in the Scriptures. The return of the Lord to His throne in Jerusalem is a signal for the nations to come and acknowledge Him as frequently it is in the Psalms. The fact that they should join themselves to the Lord, deliberately accepting His terms, not urging the claims of their own gods, and that they shall be My people, that's all covenant language. It's still a part of the emphasis regarding the call to purity. You see, God's people must bear a resemblance to Him. The worst thing that could happen is to walk out these doors today and have nobody say to me between now and next Sunday, there's something different about you. Because we're, we're to be looking, acting. We're to be the image of God. We're to bear a resemblance to Him. And just as the major affirmation of verses 6 to 9 is followed by the prophet's assertion, you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So it's stated again. Though this time he adds, to you. The bond between the people and the Lord is a covenant. Interestingly, the phrase, the Holy Land, it's used here twice, but only here in the Bible. You won't find the Holy Land referred to anywhere else. It's an extension of the psalmist, the Holy Hill, the Holy Mountain. Thus Jerusalem becomes the center from which a new covenant embracing all nations would be proclaimed. And so the final verse begins, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. In the light of Zechariah's two great disclosures that the Lord is about to reverse the prosperity of the nations and to appear to them in Jerusalem, it's appropriate that all flesh should react with awe and keep silence. I think Zechariah may have in mind Psalm 44, verse 23, Rouse thyself. Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. Or Isaiah 51.9 Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. You see, the answer to those pleas was at hand. And there's no question in my mind that this lyric poem relates first of all to the return from exile and the completion of the temple. But I believe it goes beyond these, these events. Maybe we need to think outside the box. Should we be hearing a call to purity? I believe so. Should we hear in this assurance that the nations would experience God's power and acknowledge this His Lordship? Again, I believe so. Isn't that what in fact took place on Calvary with the empty tomb? Wasn't there a new covenant inaugurated in Jerusalem when Jesus said, 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Or listen again to the words of Jesus from John 17. As fulfillment of the expectation for the Lord's coming to dwell among His people. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. One of the greatest detriments to the church today is the division that exists among Christians. And I don't just mean the multiplicity of churches and church names. I mean the division that people see on a regular basis between people who go to the same church. I know of a church that no longer exists and probably why. Where one elder sat on one side of the table, another elder sat on the other side of the table, and they did not talk to each other for eight months, and yet sat there and served communion. No wonder that church died. No wonder churches die when people who are called Christians are going out and battling negative things against their brothers and sisters in Christ. I get tired. I get tired of hearing things said about some of the problems of the past here in Brook at this church by babbling mouths in babbling Brook. Do you know that Ken used to have an award that he gave at church camp? A sack of cans. Remember what the award was called, Ken Marsh? It was called the Babbling Brook Award. A stack of cans that he would award to a camper who was found saying or doing something stupid. And I have to confess, I got one of those awards one time at a camp. <laughs> So where does this lead us? In terms of a challenge. <clears throat> Once again, I truly believe it's time for us as a church to start thinking outside the box. Most people now agree that the following statement has been falsely attributed to Albert Einstein. But the wisdom of the statement is remarkable. Here's the statement. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We need to begin to think outside the box. To think in terms of a city without walls where we do not fear the enemy because we know that God is protecting and guiding. I fully believe the statement no God, K-N-O-W, no God, no fear, N-O, fear. I'm not afraid of dying. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I'm more afraid that something will happen to me and that through medical science they'll keep me from dying. 
I can't think of anything worse in my mind than being a quadriplegic with only my mouth able to move. I'm afraid of what I would start saying if that was the case. I wish that not only my arms and legs were paralyzed, but my mouth too. There are many things worse than dying. Many. And man, we lived for the last two years with the detrimental results of people that were more afraid of dying than they were enjoying living. My challenge for you this week is to intentionally change whatever you have been doing in the past that has not produced in you the knowledge that God's plan is in motion. Make an earnest effort to get out of the ruts and seek out how God is working in your life to fulfill His promises of salvation and restoration. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today realizing that the evidence that we have not been doing right is all around us. Help us to re-examine what we're doing. Help us to re-examine whether or not some of our reasoning, such as the reasoning of building a wall, is actually stupid when you've promised protection. Help us to hear the call of Zechariah to come out of those places of Babylon so that our image is not tainted. To hear the call of purity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning.